Hello, I'm Danny Duran and this is the Infinite Jigsaw podcast, a place for honest conversation, discovery and with a genuine incentive to improve sense making. Well, in today's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Arthur de Vaedven. Arthur is a Dutch writer, historian and researcher at the University of St Andrews. He works in the field of cultural and political history, especially that of the early modern period, focusing on the history of news, books, libraries, communication and politics. And he joins me today to discuss the history of printing, newspapers and also political communication. Arthur, welcome to The Infinite Jigsaw. Thanks very much, Danny. Real real pleasure to be here uh, today. Cheers. Before we go on with the podcast, you've got an interesting bio that says that you arrived at St Andrews by way of Amsterdam, Jerusalem, Nairobi and Exeter. So take us on that virtual tour of your journey up St Andrews, if you'd be so kind. Oh, I, I will. I will do. Well, I was, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Dutchman. I was born, born and raised in Amsterdam. But uh, when I was a, a, a young teenager, my, my family moved abroad and um, I basically spent Spent a year uh, at school in uh, in Jerusalem, where I first first learned English. So that was a bit of a sort of thrown in the deep end, uh, aged uh, aged twelve. But yeah. uh, uh, real real interesting experience. And then where I was only there for a year, and then we moved to uh, to Kenya. So I was in, I finished my school in in Nairobi there for four years. And then um, having had all this English education, I thought, well, I'll, I'll maybe give give the UK a go. Because uh, I was always fascinated by by British history, so I thought I would uh, give that give that a try. And I went to study at the University of Exeter. Where I did my undergraduate degree, and uh, from there I ended up uh, coming up to St Andrews, pretty much the the opposite end of the uh, uh, of Britain, of course. Um, and uh, I've been been there ever since. Um, and for me, one of the great ironies of this whole process was that. Uh, the longer I've been in the UK, the more sort of Dutch I've almost felt. And actually, my <laughs> research has, from from first being fascinated by British history, when I when I arrived in Britain, I always sort of thought, wait a minute, you know, what's what's distinctive about Britain versus where I come from? And that really got me into into studying Dutch history. So really, a lot of what what I do now, uh, the privilege of being being abroad, is that you know you're always looking for a sort of comparative perspective in things. Uh, you're always trying to to place one thing against another and see. You know, what makes it special? Uh, because I think in a lot of a lot of history writing, uh, there is a sort of natural presumption that what you're studying is is interesting for its own sake and is already special because you're interested in it. But mm. of course, um, you know, there's say you're studying European society uh, around 1500 or 1800 or 1900, doesn't matter. Uh, there's going to probably be more similarities between different regions or cultures than um, uh, than differences. That is a, a, an interesting journey you've been on there throughout your life. As you say, you're very well placed to make those comparisons because you've immersed yourself in, in these different countries for, throughout your formative years. But uh, we've come together today to talk about the history of printing and newspapers and something also about political communication. So let's kick off and delve into the deep history of printing, because I guess one can be forgiven for imagining that print media starts with the invention of, of the printing press, you know, some 550 mm-hmm. years ago. But actually, there's a much deeper story to printing going back as yeah. early as three and a half thousand BCE. What with the Sumerian civilizations using cylinder seals, you know, to certify their documents yeah. and other early forms of block seals, hammered coinage, pottery implants. So, on. so yeah. is it worth, Arthur, opening the inquiry into printing in this deep past to get a sense of why the invention has proved so important to civilizations. 
Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there, and and I think it's very important um, to distinguish between different types of printing, and also not just the different technologies, and as you just described, you know, the different media people have been using to print with, uh, but what their broader societal impact was, and I think that is is very important to think about when when people claim things like who invented printing. You know, that, that's obviously always a, a contentious issue, and and like you say, for a very long time in in a sort of Western uh, perspective, you know, the the hero was Johannes Gutenberg uh, from uh, uh, from Mainz with his invention of of movable type metal movable type printing in the middle of the 15th century. And but these days you will see uh, lots of people saying, oh, you know, Gutenberg wasn't the inventor of printing. Obviously, it was printing before. And as you said, um, you're, you're certainly right about that. I mean, I, I think human societies have probably been using impression techniques to to call them so. Um, for for thousands of years, simply as a way to um, reproduce speedily certain types of information. And yes, like you say, you know that can be uh, a seal to to certify a document. Um, it can also be a, a poem uh, or, or or a song um, or indeed a a legal text. You know that I I think once humans have that have that potential, they uh, they begin to to employ it where where they find a need for it. And so with, with, with printing, I think um, we move the sort of the, the movable type aspect of printing where you're no longer just using a, uh, a single sheet of some sort where, which, with which you can only uh, reproduce a single text or a single image. Um, it's the, that movable type aspect of it is, is what interests me most because that means you can infinitely rearrange uh, a text using a specific sample of types. So I think that in the history of printing is a really uh, important transition. Now that is obviously famously what Gutenberg did in Europe, uh, but uh, such movable printing was also already um, experimented with and invented using either ceramic or uh, metal types in uh, China and uh, Korea, uh, really in, in the first uh, millennium after uh, and in the common era and and what you might call sort of the, the high high medieval period um, but i think there's one important uh, um, thing to think about here and that's often you know that there will be a lot of people who say you know and this proves you know the chinese had printing before before europe and before Gutenberg. but it does not necessarily um uh, disprove the notion that gutenberg did invent printing himself um, there is absolutely no evidence that that's, that sort of Chinese or Korean methods of printing uh, were transmitted uh, to Europe. Um, and indeed, uh, in China and Korea, even well after um, this type of printing was invented, uh, people prefer to use more traditional handwritten techniques to produce most literature. And in, um, so there is a sense that this is just not a sort of one technological progression from um, we we have writing, then we begin printing, and everyone's printing all of a sudden. It does, doesn't work like that at all. In fact, it's it's more of an accumulation of different technologies uh, that people choose to use when it's expedient to them. And would you say that every civilization at one point has made a foray into printing, early printing and embossing? Has the technology erupted somehow into every civilization independent of each other? 
I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you will see that too. For example, with the uh, uh, the Aztec uh, and Mayan Mayan civilizations had had their own forms. Um, I'm I'm less well versed on the uh, on the on the sub-Saharan African uh, traditions of, of printing, but I would be absolutely astonished if they if there was not similar uh, uh, uses uses there. So uh, other people may be well informed, more well informed than I am on, on in that aspect. But I, I just think it's it's a very it's a very human phenomenon, and you know there doesn't need to be one single inventor whose ideas are then spread around the globe. In fact, it's it's totally natural for human communities to come up with these sorts of inventions uh, independent of one another. And that's you know that's one of the ironies where you know we're used to a very global world with ideas and technologies being able to be spread very quickly around huge distances. And in, to some extent, that was also true in, in the past. In a thousand and, and two thousand years ago, the, the world was also um, uh, connected, but nevertheless, you know, decisively less so. Uh, if you think about the, uh, the two thousand years ago, uh, the, the American civilizations um, were, you know, not connected to, to European ones. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't so that does mean that certain ideas um, didn't spread. But also it's worth thinking about, even if they had spread, that doesn't necessarily mean that people would have made use of them. And to give you one very good example, and that's the issue of why Gutenberg's movable type printing really took off in Europe, whereas movable type printing in China and Korea didn't take off at the same pace, is all to do with uh, different writing systems and, and the alphabet. And the fact that um, the, the sort of the, the Latin European alphabet only has, you know, what was it, uh, 20, 24 letters, mm-hmm. means that you need a much smaller set of metal types to do all your printing with. Whereas in China and Korea, you may be dealing with thousands of different mm-hmm. uh, characters. That when there was an attempt uh, in Korea to introduce a shortened, almost sort of westernized, you might say, alphabet of only of only about 20 plus characters, um, and this was introduced to help help uh, expedite printing. Um, very few people took this up because it was it was almost like an assault on their language by yeah. their own ruler, which and they didn't they didn't like that. So they really they used printing for very sort of bespoke purposes. Say if you wanted to produce um, uh, uh, a specific uh, poem uh, to to some of your friends or your, or your patrons. And to demonstrate the amount of effort you'd gone through uh, to produce this, you might have that printed. But really, um, manuscript uh, traditions remained much, much stronger because they were simply more flexible. They were more, more beautiful in many ways. So, you know, that's what that's what uh, Chinese and Korean uh, society stuck with. Whereas in Europe, uh, it's a totally different story. That's so interesting to find out that. Uh, Latin-derived language countries almost had, by happenstance, a head start when yeah. um, printing kind of erupted in, into the culture and the technology was was born. Um, well, there's something else you've got a special interest in that's tied to printing, and that's uh, the ephemera, mm-hmm. which I believe means the minor transient documents of everyday life. Yeah. That's the that's the definition that, that I've got. And having just spoken about the deep history of printing, let's just linger there for a moment because. I don't know. Would you know if there was always a sense in civilizations of of printing to preserve cultural information, like for like future generations, mm-hmm. along with the more practical and immediate prints that were um, employed to help with administration and never really meant to be 
preserved yeah. and would therefore yeah. be kind of ephemera. I mean, has printing always provided both a means to preserve and to be ephemera? Uh, absolutely, and and ephemera has been has been has been truly critical for actually for the for the success of something like printing. Um, and to give you, you know, we, we tend to associate uh, Gutenberg uh, for to go back to him again uh, with his great Bible. You know, the the first book printed in Europe was Gutenberg's Bible. Um, that is is true to a certain extent, but I would say it's only true if you if you if you discuss it as a uh, if you define a book as a, a substantial um, a substantial codex. Mm. Uh, if you define a book, as, as many book historians, uh, historians of the book do, as something that's, uh, you know, printed uh, with movable type, then, you know, he was producing forms, he was producing uh, indulgence uh, certificates, he was producing um, short uh, little uh, grammars and, and school books, um, because printing a, a massive book on a hand press uh, might take you uh, half a year or a year or even even 18 months or so, uh, because you're printing uh, individual parts of that book. So choirs, uh, you, you're not you're not printing um, one copy of the book in one go, and then you do a second one and a third one. You're printing all the copies you need of the specific parts of the book before you then move on to the next. So basically, you're dealing with a process if you want a thousand copies of a, of a Bible, where for much of the printing process, you have got thousands incomplete copies of a Bible until you've finished it. So yeah. obviously, that, that, takes, that requires a huge amount of investment in uh, paper, in, in labor hours, uh, in storage. So what did printers do uh, to make money in the meantime? They would intersperse big works like this um, with short jobs. And that would exactly be these sorts of things like like forms, pamphlets, uh, uh, little little school books, uh, maybe some devotional prints, uh, because these might only take a couple of days to produce. And then you could get those out on the street, you could get them sold, and you would have a little bit of income coming in while you, while you were working on your big uh, project. So there's economically there's a very close relationship um, between um, uh, printing and ephemera. Uh, it, sh it should also be said that you know ephemera has always been essential to to the, to the sort of great institutions that have often supported the art of printing. And here I'm thinking specifically of the church um, and of government, because with, with church, I mean, again, this is one of the uh, one of the probably the items that was printed in terms of quantity that were printed the most uh, around Gutenberg's time, and, and those were indulgences, so printed printed forms. Uh, on which uh, your indulgence certificate uh, was uh, was recorded. I mean, we know of, of orders of hundreds of thousands of these at a time for specific printing houses, because you could produce, you know, 10 or 12 of them on a single sheet of paper. And, you know, this also gets us to a sort of ironic point where to the printing house, an indulgence is very ephemeral because it only takes, a, it, like I said, you know, it, it doesn't take very long to produce. You will get uh, sort of cash injection very quick, but to the people buying these certificates, um, they, you know, these are things you will carry with you for the rest of your life. We even know of people being buried with their indulgence certificates because this is your uh, ticket, in a way, out of out of purgatory. This is this is one of the means by which you uh, will attain salvation. So it's it's both ephemeral and it's and it's both not, which I find very interesting. So the printing industry and the, the, the ephemeral 
products were largely driven by a commercial concern or a commercial necessity. So there must have been the ones that were particularly popular and the printers would have focused on producing. What what are some of these examples of uh, of the, these ephemeral prints that were very, very popular and, you know, made a lot of money for the printers in a short space of time? Well, one of one of the very early ones is is some of these uh, uh, grammars and, and school books. There was one particular text uh, by a grammarian called Donatus, which was basically in throughout all of Europe one of the key texts by which you could begin to learn Latin. So, you know, very short piece of work uh, that would have been uh, used by many uh, um, uh, young boys uh, at schools. And so this is a, a very good example of, of truly ephemeral printing because it's something that's often, you know, read to pieces. Um, and because it is so ubiquitous, people also make very little effort to save them because why would you want someone else's uh, donatus when you can when you can have your own? Plus that, that you know, um, those, those boys who, who didn't enjoy their classes and, and school very much will probably have thrown them away. So it's, it's not something anyone holds on to. And, and really one of the few surviving examples of this type of text uh, we tend to find nowadays not um, in perfect, pristine condition, but used as fragments of this text as a sort of binding support. So when, when a bookbinder would put a parchment uh, a binding on a volume, uh, they would often use bits of paper to to bolster the the, the, the backing uh, so that this is more secure. And they would often use waste paper like uh, this this grammar book uh, to do so. Uh, so it's exactly those those type those types of items. It's rather ironic, do you think, that something that is meant to be ephemeral is actually now so eagerly sought after by collectors? When did this fascination with collecting these these ephemeral documents that were supposed right. to actually be disposable come about? Yeah, very, very good question. And, and it's it's a very interesting sort of antiquarian development that um, I mean, it, it really became very prominent, I would say, in the 19th century uh, when when there was you know, widespread modernization of bibliography and, 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 um, and, and it's basically scholarship on early printing. That was interested in finding out who was printing where, you know, where did printing originate? How did it spread? But even before then, already in the 17th and 18th century, specifically in England, uh, there was a widespread interest in the product of the press of, uh, of William Caxton, uh, the first uh, printer to set up uh, in England itself. So there was already a sense that even then, you know, this, this was something truly special because he was widely known to be the first. So if you could get a little fragment of Caxton, that was already uh, quite something. But as a much broader movement, this is only really a development in the 19th century. And even then, um, you know, specifically more of the last 50 years, I would say. I mean, now there is a lot, a lot of interest in, in ephemera. But even in the, in the early 20th century, you could, I mean, I collect, I collect old, old and rare uh, books myself as well. And I know some stories of, of all the collectors who, you know, describe just buying whole collections of ex what are extremely rare items uh, for, for next to nothing. That, that's becoming more, a bit uh, uh, more difficult these days. Mm. But, you know, to give you one example, uh, your listeners won't be able to see this, but I've literally got here uh, next to my desk uh, exactly a, a piece of ephemera, this uh, from the 17th century. Uh, which is just a single sheet of paper about the size of an, of an A3 uh, sheet that contains a, a poem written to commemorate the death of a uh, Dutch admiral 
during the Third Anglo-Dutch War in the 1670s. Now, that's in, in some ways a totally uh, common piece of printing. Uh, when when uh, important individuals die, there's a public commemoration. Uh, certainly in this period, you know, poets will come forth to sing their praises. And these would then be printed, sold on the street, maybe hung up in a, in a tavern so people could, could read along. So in some ways, it's absolutely ubiquitous. But of this specific um, printing, um, there's only two copies in the world that survive today. One that's in a royal library in The Hague, and the other one is in my office. You know, so, so for me, that is a that's a pretty pretty special thing uh, uh, to possess. Indeed, and yeah, rarity breeds um, collectability. Yeah. Um, well, drawing the concept of the ephemera right up to the modern day, and just just before we move on to talk about newspapers, I mean, this might be a bit of a meta question, but could we regard the form of modern ephemera to be kind of this rolling news feed that we have mm-hmm. because the rolling news feed kind of unfolds perpetually doesn't it in front of our eyes and sometimes sometimes it has pertinence but also because the feed must be fed and constantly yeah. like topped up sometimes it has less significance and is less new newsworthy i mean the, the rolling news feed kind of fits the definition of the minor transient documents of everyday life do you think yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we are producing more and more information every single every single day, and ephemeral information is absolutely at the heart of that. I mean, so is you know big book publishing. More books are published uh, every year than ever before, but we produce so much information that is extremely transient. Um, and you know, it, it 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 will be a real challenge. I think in a hundred years' time. The historians of the future will be looking at our age and thinking, you know, they didn't save a lot, a lot of the things uh, they were producing back then. You know, if you think of a mm-hmm. uh, of, of a Twitter or an, or an Instagram feed that is just rolling and, and and scrolling ever ever past, obviously you can say, well, if someone has been on Twitter for ten years, you can look through their entire profile to see what what they posted in the past. Uh, but even there, you know, techniques of um, uh, deleting posts, uh, accounts that are that are blocked or uh, disappear into the ether, mean that a lot of information is lost. And then, you know, we haven't even thought about uh, the sort of advertising we see online, uh, whether that's on a on a web page or a Twitter feed. I mean, that's extremely. That's not something that's saved anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only people who who know that they put that out there is uh, the platform and the advertiser themselves. You know, whether they're keeping hold of it, uh, possibly. But, you know, we've never been as societies very good at keeping uh, corporate and commercial archives. You know, there's a long tradition of um, that we should keep governmental information. Uh, and, and with that comes a variety of societal information about people. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case for, for commercial institutions. So, I mean, the amount we, we produce so much, um, but I would say that. Over 99% of it is, is immediately lost. Yeah, so much of it. Uh, I can't yeah. see anybody having a framed screen grab of a, of a tweet next to their desk in 150 years time, just like well, you've got that. But, but who knows? It could be utterly. Who, who knows with, with, with uh, non-fungible tokens and the likes? Uh, you know, we're, we're already, I mean, that's a, that's a very good example of what is in many ways very ephemeral uh, products, you know, a, a digital artwork that if no one was interested, would also disappear, sink, sink without a trace. Yet for some reason, people are, um, are collecting them uh, and putting serious, serious prices on them. So, you know, I think at the same time, 
we will continue to create uh, new collectibles, if you see what I mean. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Let's move on to news, uh, newspapers. And we might be right to say that the epitome of ephemera is, in fact, the newspaper or, or has been. And this might be slightly naive of me, but I presume that the invention of the newspaper is, is born out of kind of two demand forces, one being the ability of a certain number of the population to afford to buy and to be able to read it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you need that in place. Yeah. And the other being a more maybe political driver, the one that seeks to convey civic messages and, and perhaps sort of aid with electioneering and things like that. But is it fair to uh, to deduce this corollary about society's early appetites for the newspaper or were there other drivers behind it? No, I, I think I think you're abs- absolutely right there. You know, there's a sense that uh, there is, I mean, I mean, early newspapers are, are very, you know, they're very political, not in the sense that they are immediately um, political in the sense of commentary the way, way, way we have today. Well, there's a very strong editorial tone to a newspaper, but they really emerge out of a, a widely shared interest to be up to date with the latest political news. Uh, this is really an, an invention that dates to the early 17th century. Um, and it, it is also uh, born out of about a century experience of, of printing ephemera and, and, like, and, and printing news. Um, already very early on, uh, printers were producing uh, little booklets uh, filled with uh, reports of you know, military triumphs or a great earthquake uh, or a storm uh, that's passed. But it's only with the sort of improvement of postal systems that you're able to get regular, reliable uh, news from around, say, the European continent to one place, that you can begin that that sort of regular uh, bulletin updates that allow for the rise of a newspaper. And that's really what it was in its in its very earliest form. Just a sheet of paper printed on, on both sides or folded twice to make a little booklet of, of a few pages uh, that was just filled with um, little bulletin reports that say something like, you know, from Paris, we have news that the ambassador has just left town or from um, Vienna. There is news of a great battle against against the Ottomans and the results are as follows. Uh, and that would then be printed in uh, several hundred or several later, several thousand copies uh, and again, then distributed uh, more widely. So you're absolutely right that that you know, really means um, that it requires a, a base of necessary interest of subscribers. Because obviously this type of news has, has been around as long as, uh, again, as long as human uh, civilization, that people are interested in, in affairs of what goes on. Mm. But it's such an interesting uh, development to me because it, it does say something about a more general growth of political awareness in society, uh, that you're not just interested in what's happening uh, locally, but that you're interested in what's happening further afield. I actually wanted to ask you something about delivery networks, and you mentioned it then. Um, no matter how successful a, uh, an invention and resulting commodity is, without a successful delivery network um, and the demand for it, which we've just sort of spoken about, you, you don't really get anywhere. So do you know of any sort of instances, any civilizations or, or, or countries that have got the, got the two together perfectly aligned and have firstly a very good printing industry and mm-hmm. secondly on top of that a really good delivery network well to give, give you an example close close to home uh, i mean the netherlands is, is a very is a very good example of that where you have a quite a small country 
that was uh, already very early on, uh, very urbanized, lots of different, uh, you know, den- densely populated uh, in many cities, also very uh, literate uh, population, about uh, about 60 percent of, of men in the 17th century Netherlands uh, could read. Um, and you also have a very good sort of infrastructure network uh, using uh, waterways, using canals, where basically if you're printing a newspaper in, in Amsterdam, uh, you can have it all across the country by uh, the, mid- the middle of the next day. So that you're almost, you know, e- even in, the, in an era of basically just sail, uh, sail power to, uh, and, and horsepower rather than motorized uh, information, you can get it uh, across very speedily. And, you know, that remains the norm um, in, in most societies until you really get the invention of, uh, of the railways uh, in the 19th century, where all of a sudden you can, you can begin to distribute news with such incredible speed across regions that they really also allow for the, uh, for the sort of integration of, uh, of the nation state as it, as it was then, the sense of connectivity of that um, very famously uh, Benedict Anderson's work on, on the imagined community, the sense that even though you may be uh, a thousand miles away from someone else in, in your country, because you're able to, to read the same things at the same time, um, you feel connected to, to your fellow people, yeah. uh, which, which wasn't the case before. Yeah, I'm starting to build up this picture of um, of what makes this whole industry tick. And if you've got the the print industry and on top of that, you've got the delivery network, then you've also got journalism. But we'll go on to talk to that in a minute. You've got your demand. But something, uh, another really um, great revenue for the print industry has been advertising. Yeah. Um, so c- could you tell us about some of the early forays into newspaper ads? Were they about products or services or mm-hmm. political publicity? What you know, what was it about? Yeah, very, very good. I mean, advertising is, is really important to to, to, to the early uh, newspaper industry. Uh, I mean, it provides a, a vital sort of additional source of income. I mean, many, many newspapers, and it's the truth not many people know, is that, you know, that many, many of them struggled in the early days because, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with such tight margins. If you want to uh, uh, sell the news to a thousand people, uh, you need to make sure the newspaper is cheap enough to find all those people willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So many newspaper publishers really struggled to, to come around, and, and advertising you know, provides you with with a bit of additional income that meant that many actually started making profit. Um, but it's also important for another reason that is, it just gave a different flavour to the news. You know, most early newspapers were basically focused on high political affairs, military affairs, and, and foreign affairs. But if you all of a sudden start introducing notices about, uh, like you said, local goods and services, you know, a schoolmaster advertising uh, an exciting auction taking place uh, in, in your town, uh, the arrival of all these uh, uh, ships from, from the Indies uh, with a list of all the goods that, that are now available to be bought. Um, but also things like like tragedies and crime. You know, there were a, stolen horses is an absolute perennial uh, oh. feature of, of early newspaper advertising. Um, so wanted wanted criminals, um, missing pets. I mean, that's another one that really interests me where you can be, you know, people uh, 400 years ago were just as emotional about their pets as, uh, uh, as they are today, judging from, from, from some advertisements. And some pretty, you know, heartbreaking stuff, you know, child, children uh, uh, being kidnapped or, or running away. Um, so, 
all that sort of very human element really begins to creep into the newspapers in, in the late 17th and 18th century. And I think it provides another reason for people to be buying them because it gives you another, you know, part of it is, is just the, the human interest, but also because it contains much more practical social and economic information. It's interesting. Something that you talked about wanted posters, and mm-hmm. I, I got me thinking of wanted dead or alive, you know, yeah. sort of the late 1800s in the, in the West of America. So yeah. do you think that the, that that kind of gold rush era was supercharged by the print industry in a way yeah absolutely i mean very very famously that that's a sort of era of uh when the newspaper is really one of the most dominant forms of 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 information sharing um and you know where where you have these uh uh, gold rush towns that would be be popped up in a few weeks uh they invariably had a had a printing press and a a local newspaper uh you know newspaper publishing in, in the united states uh at the end of the 19th century is is, is, is an extraordinary phenomenon. And, and not just because how widely it was taking place, but just how for how many different communities, you know, the, the amount of newspapers printed in Swedish and uh, and, and German and, and, and French and um, that would be published in the United States in the 19th century because they were catering to very specific communities. You know, that's when the newspapers involved have really become the platform to share information uh, with other people. And that's a sort of a, a dominance that it that it's uh, gets in the 19th century with the advent of uh, railways, with the telegraph, that again allow for this very speedy dissemination of information. And it's only something the newspapers really begin to to lose, uh, although they don't lose it completely, but they begin to be challenged uh, by the the advent of new mediums such as radio uh, and television, and of course ultimately uh, the internet. Yeah. But something else that would have been very important for the printing press to be able to fulfill in the late 19th century in the gold rush era would have been the local political climate, which was actually becoming quite sophisticated. You would vote on a sheriff, you would vote on a mayor. Yeah. Um, and, and so political messaging is really important. So let's hover around this question of yeah. the newspaper and, and political communication, because as we've discussed, the newspaper has been the best vehicle for political messaging for a long time. And even with the prevalence of the internet and everyone like staring at and scrolling through news items on their mobile phones. Nevertheless, it endures. So how has the newspaper been used in the past to sway societal opinion? What are some mm. of the most significant instances of use and abuse? Well, that's, that, that, that's a very good question. I mean, for that, we really have to have to go to, to England in the early 18th century, when, when for the very first time, the newspapers are really beginning to be used as, as the, in the way you describe, as these very mm-hmm. politicized platforms. And that's only really the case there because you had, based pretty uniquely in Europe for that time, you had sort of competing political parties in, in the Whigs and the Tories. Uh, and basically, they began to turn to newspapers as, um, as platforms from which to attack their opponents, but also to provide, you know, some, some sense of some political cohesion. And uh, and rhetoric for their own side that if they if if their supporters were reading the newspaper that they had a, they had the sort of the words to tackle the issue or if they were meeting uh, you know a, a fellow townsman in the in in the tavern or the coffee house that they would be able to um, uh, to speak with some eloquence uh, on a subject and I think that's that's very and I think that's why newspapers uh, continue like you say to to, to be important. 
uh, to be important, e even with the age of unbridled free uh, digital news, is because the sense of this sort of platform, a flagship, gives gives it uh, some sort of uh, legitimacy and, and authority that people look to it to say, okay, this is where we will we will truly find a position on a particular issue. So I think that's that's a really important way in, in which uh, newspapers um, have been involved in this issue. Mm -hmm. But you also see it, for example, in the uh, in the American Revolution, where uh, most of the American newspapers uh, in in the late 18th century, uh, you know, they were they were pretty radically on the side of revolutionaries. Not least because of the of the infamous uh, Stamp Act uh, of the 1760s, which the British government imposed on on paper and newspapers and the colonies. So they basically made enemies of all, of all the press, which ensured that the press was always naturally inclined to be on the side of the of the revolutionaries. And because the the newspapers themselves really claimed this political role, that allowed the freedom of the press, which is obviously such a such a critical. Uh, part of the, the U.S. Constitution to be enshrined in it from the very beginning. That people were saying, "No, look, you know, the, we, the newspapers helped us win printing, and newspapers helped us win uh, this struggle. Uh, we should not let go of them." That's about. I mean, talking about um, winners and losers, Arthur. What about <laughs> newspaper ownership then? I mean, mm -hmm. I'm guessing that powerful people soon clamoured for monopoly of, of, of this um, of this medium. Yeah, um, I, I, that's absolutely right. And, and newspapers, uh, newspaper and monopolies have you know gone together hand in hand from the from the very beginning. Uh, and in most places, you know, excepting uh, the Americas, excepting uh, the UK, excepting a little bit the Netherlands, in most places there was simply one great newspaper um, that had a privilege uh, that would not be um, that that could not be uh, fought by anyone anyone else because they had the support of of government. And really, in in the 19th century, that's that that era is is over. But you get a, a different type of of monopoly, and that is a sort of the great uh, a capitalist corporatism of mm. the press, where basically you can begin to assert your dominance in the industry by buying lots of papers, and and basically um, beginning to beat your competitors out of the market commercially uh, and structurally, rather than uh, politically. And that's what you see in America uh, in, at the end of the 19th century with sort of the great, uh, the great titans of, of the newspaper industry there. And the word monopoly, where it comes to business, is replete with negative connotations. And given that newspapers have been used to sway societies to think in certain directions, I mean, that, naturally, these things are driven by people, not only from politicians, but journalism itself. Yeah. Well, could you tell us something about early regulations surrounding the newspaper industry? Are, are there any countries that were early to regulate what went into the paper and how it must be verified as true and factual? Mm. Uh, good question. I mean, in most places, it was it was more of a sort of widely shared informal code rather than than hard regulation. You know, a sense a, the sense that newspapers must publish uh, truth and true information. Uh, rather than make things up, you know that was absolutely at, at, at the core uh, of, of newspaper publishing. Uh, you know the worst punishment was reserved for newspaper uh, printers who had just fabricated news. Um, you know publishing news that ended up not being true is something else in a way. You know if you say uh, there's been reports 
of a battle and uh, it, it seems that so-and-so has won, if that was actually the news that was communicated to the, to the newspaper publisher and they printed it, that was okay. But as long as they hadn't just come up with something themselves altogether, that was that was really considered to be to be absolutely the greatest crime. And in terms of sort of broader regulation, I mean, for a very long time, interestingly, in most countries, you know, newspapers weren't really allowed to comment on domestic politics. They could print news about foreign affairs, but they couldn't criticize the local ruler or begin to you know, run an editorial piece on uh, why are the taxes so high. Um, so there is a there is a, a very long history of, of sort of a quite uh, a polite discourse uh, in newspapers that really uh, disappears in many places in the 19th century, partially. And you already hinted at this earlier because of the um, emancipation of, of, of voters. You know, if you, if you expand mm -hmm. the electoral base and so many more people are expected to have a say in politics and to be voting, to participate formally, then you do want people to, to have an opinion, to be informed. And at that stage, that's when newspapers in most countries begin to be allowed to express themselves a bit more and to inform people on, on domestic politics, because it's absolutely necessary to the um, to political society. If that's not the case, you know, if 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 government is made up mostly of a of a much smaller elite, then there's very little um, role for the newspapers to be commenting extensively on, on domestic politics. So, would it be fair to say that the the perceived power of the newspaper to be able to sway uh, society one way or the other had to be regulated at some point. And it's a kind of miracle that these newspapers were sort of gobbled up by powerful people who, mm. who, who, who let's face it, uh, in, in history have had to be constantly checked. Otherwise, yeah. they, they run amok with their power. And I think it's quite amazing that a cornerstone of journalism should be that things must be truthful and factual. And I, I wonder if we can see regulation coming to the Internet in the same way that regulation had to come to the print industry. Mm. I, mean, I know people are trying to resist regulation yeah. um, to what goes on the, on the Internet. But if it had to come in the print industry, then surely it might have to come in the digital print industry. Uh, it's a very, it's, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's a real issue and it's a, it's a real challenge. I mean, the key distinction, I think, that allow um, digital platforms to get away with it is that they're not the what often they can claim they're not producing content. You know, that's that's so different with a newspaper. If you print a newspaper, um, it, it's perfectly obvious that it's the, uh, the newspaper publisher and its, uh, it, its reporters and its writers who have created the content. And so if they then do something that's if they publish something that's not true or false, you can take them to, to court about it. You can take them to account for it. If you simply own a platform that someone posts an opinion or a fact on or a, a, a so-called fact, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, then you can claim that actually that's it's, it's not your information. And actually, that person is just exercising their their, their freedom of speech. Now, that's where. Uh, they're, they're getting away with it. How how that will continue, I'm, I'm not sure. I think there's there's going to be, um, you know, we, we haven't seen the end 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 of this story yet. Um, and it, it should also it, it it should be said that it's also the case that you know, whenever 
media has become uh, truly powerful. They have always uh, resisted regulation precisely also because they are quite close to sources of political power. Yeah. You know, the, the press does like to um, claim that it, that it stands up for uh, for the average individual, you know, for for the benefits of, of society, and that they do uh, in, investigative reporting that exposes scandals and fraud and, uh, and and bad things, exposes the powerful. And that's certainly true. They're, they do that all the time. That, that's perfectly obvious. But it's also the case that you know there is real power in the press to. Uh, to withhold information and actually not print everything that the the publisher or its reporters may know about. You know, as as an audience, you only see what what is reported, but you're you're less aware of the process by which uh, the reporting uh, comes uh, to its um, uh, to its result. Uh, you know, and we only need to be reminded of some of the greatest uh, uh, greatest uh, triumphs of the press. If you think, for example, about the the scandal, uh, the, the Boston Globe, uh, it's, it's great reporting on the, uh, the scandal of uh, abuse in the Catholic Church in, in America. Um, that is indeed a triumph of investigative journalism. Uh, on the flip side, you can also say that it was an absolute failure on the part of so many other papers um, to report the same mm-hmm. um, for such a long period. So you know, th- there is a story of success there. Uh, but also in many cases, uh, one of collusion, and that is uh, that is especially the case uh, in times of a crisis and in times of war. Um, there's there's always been, you know, from the rise of sort of war correspondence in the uh, middle of the uh, 19th century, there's always been a very close relationship between uh, uh, war reporting and and the official line, so to speak. Hmm. Well, I'm thinking of the future now. I'm listening to you talk there and for a decade or so, people have been bemoaning and um, predicting the imminent demise of, mm-hmm. of, of print media. And my concern is that the classic journalistic practices and supposed integrities, if it's not reflected in this new media landscape that we have, we are in that gold rush era, we're in the wild west, really. So it's not that I'm calling for regulation, but what I am calling for is perhaps content makers and people that uh, are pseudo journalists. Now, anyone can grab a mic like I do yeah. and have a computer and switch it on. Be mindful that there have been journalistic practices that have safeguarded us in the past from the worst excesses of what um, some people would, would have do with um, with media formats. What do you think to this? Um, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I also think, I mean, I'm, I'm perhaps a bit more optimistic because I think um, that many people who do that, like yourselves, you know, the, the, um, uh, anyone who can just pick up a microphone, begin to report themselves, begin to publish news. I do actually think many people do hold themselves to pretty high standards. It's simply that we're dealing with such a large uh, quantity of people that even if a very small portion of them aren't uh, keeping to those standards, you're going to have an awful lot of uh, of, of, of poor media out there, so to speak. Um, but I, I think, I mean, I, I also think it will continue to be the case that the the, the professional flagships uh, will continue to to survive and act, and probably thrive in in a digital landscape. 
Uh, I mean, advertising uh, revenue is, is, is certainly down. But I think especially in times of uncertainty, um, many people will still visit uh, the New York Times um, and, and the Guardian um, and, and all the, the leading papers that now have digital forms um, uh, for, for insights and for commentary. And it's simply, you know, and, and the people who are not doing that were not being reached by those platforms in the first place. So I don't think that necessarily we're seeing people fleeing high standards and, all, and turning to low ones. It's simply that the, the, the way that, that algorithms work in, uh, on, on the Internet when, uh, when news stories are put out there um, and the speed with which people can disseminate information via social media platforms, that as soon as something gathers a significant momentum, it ends up showing, showing up everywhere. But I also think it's a case that there's a ton of very poor and uh, uh, um, just uh, false information out there that never, you know, bubbles up in the first place, and that that, that there's always to sort of condemn to the to the recesses of uh, of the internet. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, I mean, things things are not great, but I would I would I would also sort of caution that actually uh, we're coping reasonably well in man, in many respects too. Yes, of course you're right. You're right. I take back everything. I'm an op- I'm an optimistic person, but uh, <laughs> so should yeah. be. Um, one more question on on political communication and and newspapers. Just for I move on to the last question. Um, what about this thing where newspapers seem to get entrenched in either um, the left or the right, or mm-hmm. they're kind of ideologically affiliated, loosely, yeah. not officially, but ideologically affiliated. Has this always been the case? Is it more of a modern phenomenon? And can newspapers evolve themselves out of these grooves and into a, a you know, a more of a middle ground or, or even mm. switch from left to right? What's the landscape? Um, it, it is indeed more more of a modern phenomenon, basically, where you're, you're getting to the stage where, again, you have uh, multiple competing political ideologies and, and parties. And that's really where you develop uh, newspapers out of that that can appeal to a political group that's large enough to sustain them. I mean, again, we're really speaking of a 19th century uh, development there, even though, as I mentioned earlier, with the sort of uh, Whigs and Tories in the in the early 1700s, you, all, you already had, had these phenomena. Um, can, can newspapers grow out of it and change? I think absolutely they can, uh, but it's a risk. Uh, and that's why many of them don't do it, because you, you know, once once people buy a newspaper for a brand, um, they don't like to see that brand change too much. You know, it's, it's a simply thing that this is the newspaper we get because that's the one we've always had. Um, you know, that, that can afford you some flexibility in your in, in your political stance, but you can't make a sort of total 180 uh, uh, degree turn without um, risking that you lose quite a lot of your base uh, before you've before you've appealed to a new one. So I think branding, which is, of course, one of the greatest strengths of newspapers that allow them to distinguish themselves, also in that sense, come with some drawbacks. Yeah. Well said. Thanks for that information. Uh, thanks for all your thoughts there. Just want to ask you one last question, uh, Arthur. And this is I'm throwing it right back into uh, into history here, um, because there's a topic I've been trying to tease apart and canvas my guests for their opinions and, and definitions of. And that's the Enlightenment. Uh-huh. So. But could you tell us if you might know something about the role that print media had in the era of the Enlightenment? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, I would say that the most sort of enlightened uh, thinkers and the, the advocates of, of the movement in the, in the 18th century, uh, they were absolutely devoted to, to printing uh, and to, to, to books. Uh, I mean, they were all, uh, you know, when, when you're thinking of the likes of uh, Voltaire or Rousseau or uh, uh, John Locke, I mean, these were people who were prolific writers themselves. Um, you know, the, the famous uh, Ansi, uh, French Encyclopédie of the uh, middle of the 18th century was a, was a massive work of books. Uh, these were all people who, who believed really that the key to improving society um, lay in better information and, and sharing knowledge and, and making that more widely available. So to them, they immediately looked towards the technologies that they had available to, to do that. And uh, much of that was to do with, um, uh, with printing, whether that was in the form of books, uh, and then, of course, also uh, newspapers spreading uh, information about about their policies, about their political movements. So they have a very, very close relationship uh, with printing. So I think the real the real irony of the Enlightenment, uh, and this is something uh, from which um, I'm uh, informed a little bit from some work on the history of libraries, is that the Enlightenment as a broader movement was also responsible for the destruction of immense amounts of uh, information in printed form. Some of the great, uh, what you might call the enlightened despots, so the rulers who advocated for enlightened reform in their countries, like Joseph II of Austria, um, uh, destroyed hundreds of ancient libraries in the, in the, in the Austrian lands because they contained the wrong sort uh, of books, uh, books that spoke against enlightened ideals because they were uh, filled with sort of uh, Catholic um, uh, monastic uh, titles. Um, so in a sense, um, you have an irony that uh, people of the book, so to speak, can also rail against, um, can also rail against most fervently against erroneous information. You know, just the same way that uh, we may deride fake news on the internet, enlightened advocates were um, railing against what they considered to be the false information of, of past dogma. Um, so, you know, that is in, in, in that sense a very uh, much more a sort of more human element than a purely enlightened one. What an excellent answer. Thank you. That's a really good piece of the enlightenment puzzle found and put in place. That's something that I'm, I'm really interested in I'm building up over the course of this podcast. Well, Arthur, thank you very, very much indeed. You, you write books also. Can, people can buy your books. Where from? Um, virtually any, 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 any good bookshop, I, I would say. I mean, also widely uh, available online, but I'm always keen uh, for people to support their, their local bookshop if, if they have one. Um, so uh, do pop, pop in and, and see if they have it. And they should know that even if a bookshop doesn't, any bookseller will always be very happy to order in order in uh, for you. So do remember that as well. And just give us a quick summary of, of the books that you have written so people can um, whet the appetite and go and pick them up. Absolutely. Well, the two, two I will advertise here is, is one, the most recent one is called The Library of Fragile History, uh, which I've uh, co-written with one of my colleagues here at St. Andrews, Andrew Pettigree. And that's really a, a sort of um, global um, history of libraries and book collecting from um, the very first human societies all the way to the, to the present day. And the other item uh, is called The Bookshop of the World, uh, which is all about the uh, book culture and print culture, information culture of the Dutch Golden Age. 
So if you know something about Dutch Golden Age painting, you've never heard of its printing, then uh, this is definitely the book for you. Excellent. Thank you very much. And what about any upcoming projects? What are you working on at the moment, bookwise? Well, I'm, uh, the next thing I'm, I'm, I'm currently finishing up is, uh, is, is coming, has come out of my PhD thesis. And that's really uh, a foray into the study of, of political communication. Uh, so that deals with the way in which government seeks to um, uh, persuade and inform its citizens uh, in an age before mass media. So that's I'm currently working on that and that uh, will hopefully be out uh, sometime next year. Brilliant. OK, well, thank you very much again, Arthur. It's been great to talk to you. I hope to speak to you sometime in the future. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure, Danny. Thank you very much. OK, cheers, mate. Ta-ra.